The reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30, and then verses 36 to 43. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands with the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters were angels. As the weeds were pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their, of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Morning, everyone. Um, I wonder if you can remember the name, the face, the place where you first met your favourite teacher. I wonder who it was. If it was uh, someone who looks like this on the screen, if it was a man uh, or, or a woman who made a great impact on your life, I just wonder if you can remember their name. I can remember the name of my favourite teacher. His name was Mr Moore. Uh, he was my teacher when I was 11 years old at a middle school in Dorset. I remember one week when uh, Mr Moore, with his um, unkempt beard and his uh, paisley collection of tank tops, that uh, I'm sure in a museum somewhere. One week, he transformed our classroom into the United States of America. All the tables were together, uh, the windows uh, had scenes upon them, the walls were covered, and we were put into teams, and we had to pretend that we were railway companies, and we had to get from the East Coast to the West Coast, and to navigate all these different problems. We, we learned a little bit about maths, um, some about geography, a little bit about English, lots about working together. But it was such a great time, all because of Mr. Moore. He, uh, he put the rules slightly to one side, but he made a massive impact on my life and the life of my friends as well. But when it comes to teaching, there's one teacher called Jesus who stands head and shoulders above them all. When it comes to teaching, Jesus was absolutely unique. His method was uh, all-powerful, all-consuming. It was visually stunning. When you heard it, it was striking. When it comes to Jesus, no one surpasses him in terms of teaching. You can see that in this chapter. In chapter 13, Jesus takes seven different uh, methods and ways of communicating this key concept, which is the kingdom of God. Jesus, in seven different ways, communicates the kingdom of God. 
You can see the parable of the weeds, the nets. You can see the parable of the lost treasure. You can see all these different parables that Jesus communicates this, this reality of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew calls it, and puts everyday clothes on it. He uses seven times something called a parable. Now, someone said a parable is like a word mirror. You, Jesus is holding up a mirror and you can see truth in it. So that's a great way to understand what a parable is. It literally means to compare the word parabole. It means to compare. And Jesus is the best teacher ever says, this, this is like this. Here is the kingdom of God. Here's the kingdom of heaven. That is kind of remote. It's ethereal. It's a concept that you can't understand. So I'm going to make it concrete for you. I'm going to make it real for you. And in, a, in an agrarian, in an agricultural setting, he says, this is what that is like. I'm going to make something abstract, concrete. I'm going to make something abstract, earthy. And I'm going to talk to you about seeds that you use every day. I'm going to talk to you about a net that you use as, as fishermen and women. That's the reality that Jesus is trying to communicate. And he says it so clearly in seven different ways in Matthew chapter 13. It's there on the screen. I wonder if you've been to a theatre. If you go to a theatre or if you go to see your children in a school play or grandchildren, there's always scenes and settings and backdrops. And the backdrop for the parable that I want us to look at this morning is in verses 24 to 30. There are three scenes. There are three uh, movements in the parable this morning. I wonder if you notice them. The first one is there in verse 24. In verse 24, you've got the work of the farmer. That's the first character in the first scene. The farmer comes out and he sows wheat. He sows good seed and the crop begins to grow. That's the first scene. Then here's the second scene in verse 25 in the second character. It's the enemy, the work of the enemy. The enemy comes in and sows a counter crop. Wheat is sown, but he sows something that's literally called zizania. Zizania. Zizania looks like wheat. It, it grows, but it's counterfeit. It looks like wheat, so it grows in between the rows of wheat. And you're tempted to, to, to leave it there because it looks like wheat. But then when it grows up to its full height, you realize it has no fruit. It's, it's a counterfeit. No, no head, no corn. Nothing that is useful, but whilst it's growing, although it looks the same, it's taking away the nutrients from the wheat. It's, it's counterfeit. It's dangerous. It's sapping all the strength from the crop that you want, and the enemies put it there. That's the second scene where the good seed has been sown, and then the counterfeit seed is sown by the enemy of the farmer. The zania comes in, and it looks like the real thing, but... But then we see the third scene. It's there in sentence 29 and 30. Sentence 29 and 30, you meet some more characters. Not the good farmer, not the counterfeit so are the enemy. You, you see the farmer's right-hand men, the workers that are working in his field. And they come with a question, verse 28. It says, what should we do about the weeds? And then you get the reaction of the farmer in sentence 29 and 30. He says, be patient. Be patient, let them both grow together. Right now, things are confused, things that are genuine and things that are counterfeit, they look the same. They're growing side by side. But eventually, we're sorted out, so have patience. We'll remove the weeds and we'll burn them. 
We collect the crop and we enjoy it. But right now, the most important thing is that you're patient and that you trust me. And that's the end of the three scenes in the parable. Jesus comes later and explains it. But those are the three scenes. You need to be patient. You need to trust me, says the farmer at the end, because I know what will happen in the end. Jesus explains that in uh, sentence 36. In sentence 36, he's saying these three movements, these three scenes, these three groups of people and characters, the, the hardworking good farmer, the enemy and the, and the hired hands that work for the farmer, really you can divide it into two. This is the, the key concept that's abstract, the kingdom of heaven, but really we can put it in two ways, says Jesus. He says there, there are two crops in the field. And the two crops, they stand for two kingdoms. And the two kingdoms, well, they're two crops and two kingdoms, and they, they both are pictures, concrete, real-life, earthy pictures in a field of an abstract, concrete reality that's called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Two crops, two kingdoms, two realities, says Jesus. Because just like last week with the parable of the seed, or the sower as it's known, the most important thing in chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel is that you must know to which kingdom you belong to. Is it the kingdom of, of God, the kingdom of heaven, or are you not in his kingdom? Are you part of the good crop, or are you part of something that's counterfeit? That's what Jesus wants us to think about. It's very confronting. It's very serious. And Jesus, as always, is a brilliant teacher. Let's look at this principle of what he says. Here's the first principle. And we need to understand why does Jesus take so much bandwidth? Why does he take so much time and energy? Seven parables explaining the same thing. That must mean that it's important. That must mean that we find it hard to understand. And so Jesus says, Here, here's some principles I want you to understand in, in these sentences about the parable of the weeds. Here's the first thing I think he wants us to understand. He wants us to understand, and he's spending so much time explaining the kingdom of heaven because of the context in which he was teaching. Because of the context, historically, in which he was teaching. What do I mean? When he was preaching and teaching in the first century, Jesus was speaking to his people, the Israelites. And the Israelites had known God's blessing, they had known God's freedom, they had known God's provision. And yet, in spite of all those things, they now found themselves in a very different social, political, financial situation. They were, they were like a colony. They were under the boot of Rome. They were under its influence. They, they felt that the reign and the force of all the might and organisational strength and capacity of the vast, great, historically well-known Roman Empire. The uh, glory days were past. They knew something more of what we know in part of social limitation. They uh, had their social freedom reduced. There was imprisonment. There was poverty. There was high taxation. There was a lack of, uh, a lack of freedom. Their, their capital was, was under the hand of a foreign master. And so repeatedly through the ages, God's people were praying to God that he would liberate them. He would send a hero from afar. They would send someone with strong political views and strong might and resources that they didn't have themselves to overthrow the Romans so that they would once again know God's uh, blessing and his rule and his reign rather than the Romans. 
They wanted to know self-government. They wanted to know freedom. They wanted to get out of isolation. They wanted to be able to make their own rules. They wanted to be able to make their own money and not give any of it away to Roman uh, lords. They wanted a hero. They needed a deliverer. And so they were praying that God would send one. There's a very interesting little passage in uh, Acts 5. In Acts 5, 36 and 37, there's a small speech from one of the religious teachers who feared God called Gamaliel. He was the teacher of the Apostle Paul, so he really knew his stuff. And in Acts 5, 36 and 37, there's a, a, little, uh, a little picture of what was going on in the time of Jesus. In those sentences, Gamaliel said, You know how in the past there have been two leaders, Thaddeus and uh, Judas the Galilean. You know these religious leaders who came, they, they spoke about the kingdom of God, they promised liberation and, and they got a following. But then they died and then their followers disbanded and they are no more. And he goes on to say, Jesus is not like that. They came, they promised much and they failed to deliver. Jesus is not like that, says Camillion. Their followers were scattered. Jesus' followers were scattered, but they are still around today. Because here comes Jesus. He, he taught like no one else ever taught. He taught as one who had authority. He healed people. He had authority over nature. He commanded evil spirits. And he didn't just do it in some, uh, some quiet corner with one person whose uh, testimony could be doubted. Jesus' power was displayed in front of many hundreds and hundreds of people. Jesus revealed the glory of God as he came to earth. And Jesus, as he always did, we talked about this last week, he turns people's expectations right on top of their heads. Jesus taught and he said to the crowds again and again, you think your biggest problem is overthrowing the political forces? You, you long for freedom. You long for having a political freedom. That's not your biggest concern. Rome is not your biggest enemy. And my kingdom is far greater than your small expectations. Your problems are bigger than social, political, psychological issues. They're real, they're important, but there's something far greater. I've come to bring the power of God from heaven to earth. I've come to deal with the root of the cause, the foundation of all your problems. I've come to break it up. I mean, just imagine what Jesus promised and what it would be like. Here is Jesus who promised that there would one day be a world and his miracles gave a stamp of authenticity to it. There would one day be a world without any more sorrow. I've come to deal with distancing and disease and I've come to deal with death. I've come to deal with racism and social division. I've come to deal with loneliness and loss. I've come to deal with mental health issues and family breakdown. I've come to deal with domestic violence. My kingdom will have none of that. God's kingdom, under God's loving rule, empowered by his spirit, is a rule and a kingdom where everything God wants for you will be affected perfectly. Imagine a world like that. Imagine a world like that today. Not just when we want hope, but imagine that reality. This is what I'm here to bring you. The, the kingdom of heaven on earth. 
This is why Jesus is saying, the kingdom of heaven is like this. But, says Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is not just like an earthly kingdom like Denmark, where there's a ruler and a reigner. There is something different about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven on earth, it's a system of leadership where God brings all things under the light and power of his royal will. One day, says Graham Goldsworthy in a famous book, it will be God's people living in God's place under God's rule. But now we just have the first fruits. We just have a foretaste of that reality now on earth. It's a system of leadership, of real change in the human heart. It's a spiritual revolution from within, in the heart of every man, woman, boy and girl. But then it spreads out to all reality. I'm going to turn your expectations right on their heads. But here's the issue you need to wrestle with, just like the farmer. It's not going to happen all at once. It's not going to happen all at once. Look at uh, verse 37. The farmer sows a crop, but they don't reap the crop the same day. Monty Don will tell you this. Look at verse 37. The son of man sows the good seed. But the crop isn't harvested the next day. Look two sentences down to sentence 39. The harvest is at the end of the age. Jesus says that twice in the uh, following verses. The kingdom of God is like farming. It's been a huge rise in the number of people like me, because I'm old and middle-aged and love my garden, watching Gardener's World. 2.7 million people. It's the highest for a decade. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like farming. The Spirit of God is at work planting the seed of the kingdom of heaven in human hearts. I'm going around, I'm changing lives. There's revolution in people's hearts and in their affections and in their hopes and dreams and aspirations. If you receive the Son, if you come under his lordship, then you're a son of the kingdom. The inheritance that is promised is yours by right of Jesus Christ. The kingdom life enters into your heart now. So you're no longer afraid of death, no longer afraid of disease. You've become a new person. You're radically changed. You've been revolutionized on the inside out. You're not a religious person anymore. You're someone with the hope of heaven in your heart. Jesus Christ is a real person to you, not just historically. He's not just alive in the pages of of the book called the Bible. By his spirit, Jesus lives and rules and reigns in your heart. He's paid for your sins. God is now your father. You have access into the kingdom of God through the son, Jesus Christ. You're accepted. You don't sleep around anymore. You don't look for acceptance in all the wrong places. You understand that the relationship with your parents was pretty clunky. It was hard. But now you have a heavenly father who will never let you down. You're loved in Jesus. You're accepted in Jesus. And in Jesus, you have a new status. That's what Sally prayed. Until the kingdom of God comes into your life, until the kingdom of heaven is real to you, you may think, well, if I just try my very best, God will be pleased with me. If I just work really hard for God, he must owe me. I can live my life how I want, but uh, over here I'm going to work for God. So that's going to be some religious capital. But one of the first signs that you've entered the kingdom of heaven, you're a member of the kingdom of God, is this. 
Your life is revolutionized. Your, your heart's affections and your aspirations are made new because you now know that you're accepted in Jesus. Everything that is his is now ours by faith. We've been united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that gives you power. That gives you a new motivation. That gives you new affections to do new things, not for yourself, but for him. You want to serve your neighbours. You want to uh, love the children of church. You want to love the children who aren't yet in church. You want to love those who are outside of the kingdom. You want to serve them well. You don't look down on them. You look at them with affection and respect and honour. There's a humility in your spirit. But verse 38 says, there is an intervening time that needs to be lived through. The, the old kingdom is growing alongside the new. The parable taught us that. The good seed is sown, but the enemy is still at work. So the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God on earth is not going to happen overnight. But instead the kingdom of God is here in a real way. That's the sign of a good teacher. They always teach you the truth so clearly. And so Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is here, but there will be setbacks because the enemy is still at work. There's going to be conflict in the world and there's going to be conflict in our hearts. But it will one day all be made clear. And one day there will be a harvest because the farmer, the Lord Jesus, has told us so. So the kingdom of God is far more radical and comprehensive than your social, political, psychological dreams and desires. And it's not going to be quick. It's not going to be simple. So you need to be patient. And you need to trust the Lord of the harvest. But these seven parables all communicate this great single truth. How do you know that you're in the kingdom? How do you know you're part of the kingdom of heaven? Because good crop, the good crop of weed, is growing next to the counterfeit crop. They look the same. How do you know that you're in the kingdom? Here are a few points to think about. To be a Christian means to make Jesus your king. To be a Christian means to make Jesus your king. John 3.3, 3, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, Jesus is speaking to a religious person who's searching for a relationship with his father God. And he says to Nicodemus, Jesus speaking, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. There's been lots written about what that sentence means. But when Jesus says, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God, he's talking about change, a revolution within, radical new orientation to your life. He's talking about conversion, how someone becomes a Christian, how someone enters into the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is talking about. And in some places he talks about a new birth, a, a baby being born, new life entering the world. In other places, he talks about a farming metaphor, about planting and, and, and seeds growing and crops uh, becoming mature and having new life, 30, 60, 100 fold, like last week in the parable of the sower. And Jesus is uh, using those images, I think, to communicate something very real. Someone needs to uh, become a Christian and, and for that to happen, it's not something you can do yourself. You can't make yourself born. You can't uh, grow if you're a seed. You need the action of parents and you need the action of a farmer. Someone to sow the seed, someone to plant a crop so that a tomato pops up a few weeks later. 
or a flower arrives or a sunflower appears. You need the intervention of someone else. And Jesus says, for you to make me your king is not something you can do yourself. You need to ask me to be your king. I am the king of the universe, but I want to be your king in your heart. I died on the cross for you. I sent my son for you. And so a sign that the king is king of your heart is that you're submitted to him. Are you utterly submitted to the king of the universe? Do you love his royal will? Do you want to know him better? Does he have the supremacy in every aspect of your life? That's what it means to be a Christian, to follow the king. It's not an optional extra. It's obedience. It's radical reorientation of your life. It's a revolution from the inside out. I mean, anything less, if he's the king of the universe, if every inch of the cosmos, Jesus Christ says, mine over, anything less is not a kingdom mentality, is it? If he's the king, how can we not obey him in everything in our lives? Anything less than complete obedience to the king is not Christianity. But a Christian is obeying, this, some, is obeying Jesus who saved you. Nothing less. But there has to be patience. It's the second thing. If you're in the kingdom, if you're in the kingdom of heaven, if you're in the kingdom of God, Jesus is the king of your heart. And you know that reality personally. But you also have to have patience. These uh, two crops are growing in this frightening parable and they're growing side by side. And here's the most frightening part, I think, of this parable. There in the sentence 25, we, you see the strategy of God's enemy, the devil. You see the strategy of the evil one alongside the strategy of God. The strategy of the evil one is to come and sow counterfeit crop. It, it looks the same. It grows the same. It's, it's people. They look decent. They look moral. They look religious. They look on the outside as if they're the real thing. They, they say the right words in the right places at the right time. They do the right things. But it's all for the wrong motivation. They're not under the loving rule of King Jesus. A lot of people can be duped into thinking that they're Christians when they're not. That's the overridingly clear message of this frightening parable. It's so sobering. You might have lived by Christian principles. You might have gone to Christian places. But actually you don't know the Lord of the harvest, King Jesus. Look at the difference between the two with me, would you? First of all, real Christians are sons of the kingdom. Real Christians are sons of the kingdom. Jesus uses these metaphors of birth and of planting. It's something that happens outside of ourselves. And Jesus says, you must have your eyes opened by me for you to be a son of the kingdom. Someone's been guiding you. It's been me by my Holy Spirit, says the Father of lights, Jesus. Someone's been revolutionizing your life. It's me by my Spirit, preparing you perhaps even for this message. So if you think Christianity is something you do, can I humbly say I don't think you've ever understood Christianity at all? Christianity is something, is something that's done to you. Christianity is a new relationship 
with the God of the universe by his power and grace and mercy. He showed us the, the entrance to a new reality is not by our own efforts. It's not by working hard. It's received by his grace. And forgiveness is, is available through his son's death on the cross. It's in his life we live. It's in his death we stand. It's in his resurrection that we enjoy hope of eternal life and a renewed relationship with our Father in heaven, who we've turned our backs on. But now Jesus runs at us with open arms that we might accept him for the first time. That's the hallmark of what it means to be a Christian, a son of the King, knowing God personally and intimately, receiving his grace. It doesn't have to be dramatic. It doesn't have to be identifiable as one moment in time when you weren't a Christian and now you are. It could be gradual, especially if you grew up in a Christian home. But it has to be real. It has to be genuine. And what is the sign that that has happened? It's there in one word. One word if you're a farmer. It's one word if you're an amateur gardener. It's growth. It's growth. The sign that you are a member of the kingdom is growth. There's a picture on the screen of, of height, of, of children growing. You might have a, a famous or an infamous a load of pencil markings on a wall or a, a doorpost in your house. But, but growth is what you're looking for. You can't see it. It's gradual. It's organic. But it's real. And it's certainly measurable. There is always fruit. And it's exactly the same in the kingdom. Christians grow. Christians grow in the likeness to Christ. If not, you're a counterfeit. If you're not growing more like Jesus year on year, month on month, then there needs to be real heart-searching questions as to whether you've ever known Jesus at all in a real way. I mean, a counterfeit person doesn't really grow. They look like they are, but they're not. Christians grow. A Christian has a growing stability and confidence in God that when there were other things in your life that you used to think would give you hope and a future, that they were places of security. When they're shaken by a global pandemic, by God's gracious hand. Christians grow in stability. They grow in God-centered confidence. They, they grow in the knowledge and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. But non-Christians will become unstable. Non-Christians in a global pandemic, when they see all that they've lived for has been shaken, when they don't have a root or a foundation, it can be a great time of searching, which is a great and a good thing. You could have been living your life for God and health. God and prosperity, God and family, God and you fill in the gap. But when a pandemic comes, everything is shaken and foundations are exposed. And one of the great things about not moving around very much, we've been to America for a few years in Crawley, but now we're back in an area that we've lived for all of our married life. We've been here for two decades and counting. But one of the great things about being in the same place for such a long period of time is that you can see people who you've known for a long time growing. I don't mean uh, things getting more uh, saggy. I don't think, mean things getting more grey or relaxed. What I mean is spiritually. 
you can see a real measure of God's grace in the lives of people. And there's countless examples I could give you. People growing through hard times, people growing in grace, people still serving the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the, the king of their hearts. So let me ask you a question today. Are you growing? Can other people identify that you're growing? You're less like your old self five years ago and you're more like Jesus today by the work of his Holy Spirit, showing you areas of your heart that are pretty murky and pretty dirty. But you start again in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and you seek to put him first and that's how growth happens. But what if uh, today has been unsettling for you? What if you uh, are not sure if you're a Christian at all? Can I ask you to pray something like this with me? This is what you might have to do at the end of this message. What if you're here and you're not sure if you're being fruitful? You're not sure if you're growing? What if you think you might be a weed? Here are some words that Jesus may have said. You could say this even now if you wanted to close your eyes. Lord, if I never before today did this, Jesus, you're my saviour. I can only be accepted because of what you've done on the cross, not anything I've done. Jesus, you're my king. I'm no longer my own ruler. I give myself afresh to you today. You can do that. You could do that in your own words at a different time if you wanted to. But that's how someone becomes a Christian. It's turning from their rebellious past, saying sorry to God for all they've done, thanking God for Jesus' provision of life, Jesus' provision of his death, so that we, in his life we may live, and standing on that truth confidently. Here's the thing. You can't try Jesus on. Jesus is not like a pair of jeans. It's not like a coat not like a new car that you might go out on a test drive in. You can't try Jesus on. You can't try a king on. My kingdom revolution is present for everybody who comes to me in repentance and faith. You don't try someone on who says words like that. But you can give yourself to him now. For the first time, you could give him yourself to him afresh today. Why don't you do that? Let me pray.